The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, with that, let's go ahead and look to God's Word today. On the back of your bulletin, if you haven't noticed yet, is the sermon title of the day, the passage we're looking at. We're looking at uh, verses 25 to 40, so we'll do that now. title today is Salvation in Action, the Ethiopian. Salvation in in action, and that's what this great story, it's a true story, it's historical, verses 25 to 40 in these 16 verses. It's one account, it moves rather quickly and rapidly, that's why I didn't want to break it up, I didn't want to lose any continuity as it happened and as God has preserved it in the Word for us. Um, and one of the main themes here is the grace of God and that God initiates salvation. Uh, the Jonah, Jonah chapter 2 says that salvation is from the Lord, and that is so true, and Here's a practical example of that, of where God brings about and accomplishes salvation in the life of an individual who was a sinner, and it kind of goes phase by phase. As God leads, he's providential, his spirit is involved, Uh, the power of his word is involved, God sovereignly orchestrates all of this on his end, and at the same time, he uses human involvement, a believer, a Christian, a fallen, finite Christian to be a part of this amazing process that we call salvation. And here it is in action. Let's go ahead and look at it. There's a map on the bottom there that corresponds to some of what's going on in this account. I broke it up into three parts, this story, just to kind of help us with the flow, emphasizing a main theme in each section. And I'll read them a section at a time as I go through them. And before I start reading verses 25 to 31, a little background is information is very helpful Hopefully this will open up a lot of the meaning of the passage, especially when we meet the main character, the Ethiopian eunuch, and what he was doing. And let's go, if you would go with me, I want to read a few scriptures from the Old Testament. And if you could follow along with me, that would be very helpful, or just listen very carefully. First, I'm going to go to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, Old Testament prophet. And then I'm going to go to the book of Isaiah. That's it, just a couple, three prophecies there about the Messiah, and then We'll go back to the New Testament. So I'm going to start in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel was a Jew, then taken as an exile into Babylon, a pagan country with a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel ended up going there as a teenager and and lived a very long life and lived that very long life in this pagan kingdom called Babylon. So he lived during the days of Nebuchadnezzar and also a couple of other pagan kings. Daniel is your major prophet following Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 7. So Daniel was a prophet of God living in a foreign land about 550, 600 to 550 B.C., so 500 plus years before Jesus was born, closing out the Old Testament era, one of the last books in the Old Testament to be written and preserved by God for us. And God gives Daniel occasional direct revelation by way of visions and dreams. And so Daniel had one of these prophetic dreams from God, Daniel chapter 7. This one happened to be in verse 1 in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, where Daniel had this vision and dream. It was bizarre. He details it out. He saw four beasts. He describes each beast. Uh, Then he's longing for an interpretation, which uh, the angel of God gives him at one point. But in addition to these four beasts that represent nations, leaders, countries. 
later on in the vision, look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. That's what I want to highlight here. 13 and 14. This is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Prophecy of the coming Messiah. The word Messiah is not used in these two verses, but it is definitely of the Messiah. The Messiah meant anointed one. Important people in the Old Testament under the theocracy of Israel were anointed with oil, whether they were civil leaders, kings, judges, priests. But Messiah means anointed one. Mashiach is the Hebrew word. And then in the Greek New Testament, it's Christos, Christ. So that's what Christ means. Christ is synonymous with Messiah. There are many, dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of prophecies regarding the coming Messiah of the Old Testament. Here is one that is highly significant. Verse 13 and 14, it says of the coming Messiah, uh, who would be born 500 years later, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, he, he was startled. That's why he said, behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. One like a son of man. That phrase, the son of man, is highly significant. It's referring to the coming Messiah. This is the first time in the Old Testament the Messiah is called the son of man. This is the only time in the Old Testament the Messiah is called the Son of Man. Very significant. One like a Son of Man was coming. He came. So he's coming with the clouds in heaven, in the sky, in glory. He came upon the Ancients of Days. That's God. That is the Father. He came. So the Messiah, the Son of Man, came upon the Ancient of Days. This is yet future from Daniel's perspective. And he was presented before him, and to him was given rule or dominion. To the Son of Man, to the coming Messiah, will be given dominion, the right to rule, authority from God. Also to him will be given glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men from every language, the entire human race, might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It is eternal. This Messiah will rule eternally. And it will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is amazing. Tremendously impactful, and this had a tremendous impact on the Jewish community from the time that it was written by Daniel, preserved, codified, and distributed all throughout the theocracy of Israel all the way up until the time uh, that Jesus was born. Every Jew knew this prophecy. One is coming. He is Messiah. He is powerful. He will come in glory, and he will be designated as the Son of Man. The only time in the Old Testament the Messiah is called the Son of Man. Then we go to the New Testament, and Jesus, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, his favorite term or phrase for himself is Son of Man. He rarely called himself Son of God. He rarely, if ever, called himself Jesus. He referred to himself as the Son of Man. He was being very deliberate. He is telling the Jews who knew the Old Testament, who knew Daniel, especially the leadership who had it memorized and taught on it and preached on it, that the coming Messiah would be designated as the Son of Man coming in glory to rule the earth. And Jesus takes on that role and that identification, calling himself Son of Man, startling to his listeners when he did that for the first time at age 30 as he unveiled his public ministry, calling himself the Son of Man of Daniel. I, the Son of Man. And you go through the Gospels, uh, dozens and dozens of times he calls himself the Son of Man. And usually when Jesus does refer to himself as the Son of Man, he talks about things that the Son of Man will do. He said the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
Now, the Jews of his day heard that and they, they thought that was blasphemous. Only God, Yahweh, can forgive sins. And yet, this Jesus from Nazareth says he can forgive sins. Only Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is the Lord of the Sabbath. And yet, Jesus says the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He keeps calling himself the Son of Man. And then he says, and when you see the Son of Man coming at the end of the age in glory, he said to the Jewish audience. So most of the times when he talked about things that the Son of Man would do, it had to do with rule, it had to do with power, it had to do with glory, it had to do with equating himself with Yahweh Almighty God, a victorious one, a conqueror, ruler of the nations. That was the portrait continually set forth by that designation, calling himself the Son of Man. And the majority of the Jews thought he was blasphemous for doing so. Uh, now go to Isaiah, just back a few books there. I mean, I, I could give you literally dozens and dozens and dozens of similar prophecies regarding this coming Christ, this coming Messiah that Daniel says will be called the Son of Man. But in Isaiah is a couple hundred years before, 150 years before Daniel, about 700 or so B.C. And Isaiah's book is very long, many prophecies about the coming Messiah. And here's one of them. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 says, Then a shoot uh, will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was a man. He was the father of David. Um, so somebody is going to be born who comes from the loins of Jesse. He's going to be a descendant of King David. He will be a branch. His roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of Yahweh, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. So this is a man like no other man. Blessed by the spirit, blessed by Yahweh, unprecedented wisdom, unprecedented understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength will also be on him. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord will be with him, whoever this man is. This is clearly in the mind of the Jew, the Messiah. Verse 3, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge, so he comes to judge by what he sees, nor will he judge and make a decision by what he hears, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. He comes in power, he comes to rule, he comes to judge, he comes in a mighty manner. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. He comes to in, in bring justice. And also righteousness will be the belt of his loins, faithfulness, the belt about his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. So now it goes into this uh, glorious kingdom literally on earth that is military, it is political, it is literal, it is religious. And he reigns as the sole monarch of the kingdom on earth that extends to the ends of the earth because it goes on and talks about how he reigns literally over all the nations. And they will be subjugated to his rule, to his righteousness. So Isaiah 12 is very clear. This is a prophecy. This is what the Jews expected of the Messiah, the coming one, the son of man. He would come in power and glory. There is not a hint in the Old Testament ever of the Messiah or the Son of Man coming as a suffering servant, coming humbly, coming to be persecuted, coming as the rejected one, and God forbid, coming to die. That just wasn't in their thinking as they read the Old Testament. Okay, now go to Isaiah 53. I have to go to Isaiah 53 because that passage comes up today in our message in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch who is reading Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 written 700 B.C., 700 years later, this man is providentially selected by God. This Ethiopian eunuch 
is reading Isaiah 53, this prophecy that has been preserved by the Spirit of God for 700 years. And he's reading probably the whole chapter. Uh, Luke just quotes verses 7 and 8 of it. And so it describes the coming one, whoever that is. This passage doesn't call, it doesn't say this is the Messiah. We would conclude it is the Messiah from the New Testament revelation. But who was it? The Jews thought this was just a man. This was either Isaiah himself, who ended up probably getting persecuted for preaching, or it could have been a prediction of Jeremiah, who would come the weeping prophet, who was highly rejected and despised by the people. Or, and the Jews also believe, well, maybe this is the nation of Israel. We have been despised uh, by the nations around us. That's how Jews, for from the time of Isaiah when he wrote this, to the time of Christ, that's how Jews collectively, corporately understood and interpreted this passage. They did not assign Isaiah 53 to the coming Messiah. He, the Messiah was the conquering king. He wasn't a suffering servant. This was a human being. Who has believed our message? Verse 1. To whom has the arm of the Lord or Yahweh been revealed? For he, whoever this man is, whether it's Isaiah or some prophet or the nation of Israel, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Verse 2. He has no stately form or majesty. He's not coming in glory that we should look upon him. He's not ordinary. I mean, he's just an ordinary human. No appearance that we should be attracted to him. This is not the son of man described in Daniel, whoever this is. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men. Certainly that can't be the overcoming, all-powerful, ruling Messiah or son of man. This person will be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised. Not just despised by everybody, but by the Jews. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Certainly this can't be our coming ruler and Messiah because the Jews are going to reject him. They are going to despise him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. That's why uh, the common interpretation was this is speaking of the nation of Israel. Yet we ourselves esteemed, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted God allowed his people, the Israelites, to be afflicted by nations around them. And God sometimes inflicted them himself for their sin. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. They are not thinking this is the Messiah. It's important for us. We as Christians, we look back in hindsight, and this is what we think. Pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh caused the iniquity of all of us to fall upon him. And here's the key verses from the Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading through this, and he gets to verse 7 and 8. He was oppressed, whoever this is. Whoever Isaiah didn't know who this was. Did you know that? Isaiah did not know who he was writing about. He didn't know necessarily that this was the Messiah. He didn't know when this person was going to live. And Peter reaffirms that. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, where Peter says, you know what? Jesus came and brought salvation, and he was prophesied in the Old Testament. But the prophets who wrote about Jesus as the Savior, who would bring salvation, the prophets who wrote about him, did not know who he was or when he would come. And they were confused by their very own prophecies when they wrote. And they're scratching their head. Who am I writing about? God, who are you talking about here? And when will this person come? That was Isaiah's question. That's going to be the Ethiopian eunuch's exact question who is this talking about he had no idea unbelieving jews to this day don't understand isaiah 53 
They're still asking the same question. Who is this? When is this going to happen? Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Let's go now to Acts chapter 8 and look at this amazing story. Before we get to point number one, starting at verse 25, just by way of reminder, we're right in the book of Acts. Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the dead, spent several weeks with his disciples to prepare them, told them, wait, be patient, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will empower you. And your mission, Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. Middle of verse 8, starting in Jerusalem, and in Judea, sorry, <coughs> and even to the remotest part of the earth. So that was the mission. Um, then in the book of Acts, where we've gone all the way up to Acts chapter 8, the apostles were faithful. They preached the gospel in Jerusalem. The whole city heard the gospel. Then it trickled over the gospel into Judea and then beyond the borders of Judea. And then we saw last time when we were in Acts chapter 8, where they took the gospel to Samaria, which would be up north from Jerusalem. Samaria was a compromised religion, almost like a cult. It was part Jewish, part paganism. Yet God loved those people and he wanted the gospel to go there. And so Philip, in obedience, went to Samaria. And Philip preached the gospel there. There was a revival. They embraced the gospel. And now the gospel continues to go out. But the gospel can't stop there. The gospel needs to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so today, in the second part of Acts chapter 8, we're going to see the gospel go to the uttermost parts of the world in fulfillment of uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So let's go ahead and look at it. So I'm going to read 25 to 31, follow along. But here's point number one. Salvation in action of this Ethiopian that gets saved. And we're going to see the calling with respect to salvation of this man. Then the next step, the justification of this man who believed the gospel. And then sanctification immediately in his saved life. Calling, justification, sanctification. First, the calling. Verses 25 to 31. By calling, by the way, calling is used different ways in the New Testament. One of them talks about efficacious calling. The calling that God does, an internal calling where God works on the heart of a person through the truth of his word, through conscience, and through decisions that God made before creation called foreknowledge and predestination. This is from Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And Paul says, those whom God foreknew before the foundation of the world, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined. Predestination just simply means to mark out. Horizon. It comes from the word horizon. To make a a line of demarcation. And those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified or saved, he also glorified. But that means he will glorify. They will be preserved. So that's the calling I'm talking about here. It is an 
internal calling where God works on the heart and woos them and brings them to himself, and it culminates in salvation. So if you're a Christian today, you were called by God. You were called before you got saved in this life, and you, there was a calling of God before you were even born. It is a, a mystery. I don't understand it, but that's what the Bible teaches. And that was true of this Ethiopian eunuch. So let's go ahead and look at the calling of this believer. Starting in verse 25. Uh, so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, that would be, at a minimum, Philip, Peter, John, and maybe some of the other apostles, who came to investigate the revival at, at Samaria. And they just rebuked this phony guy, Simon, the magician. After that was done, they preached some more. And so they had uh, solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord. They started back to Jerusalem. That's where they got to go back to the home church. That's where their pastors and shepherds. So Philip is going with Peter and John. And they're traveling and they were preaching the gospel along the way to many of these villages in Samaritans, which is a wonderful change in John the Apostle, who at one time wanted the fires of heaven to come down and consume the Samaritans during Jesus' ministry. Now he's had a heart change. He loves them. Now he's preaching the good news to them, desiring their salvation. Verse 26, so as they're walking, all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Spontaneously, out of the blue, an angel from heaven. This is not normal. This hasn't ever happened to me as a Christian. And I don't know anybody personally who's ever told me this has happened to them. This is unique. And just about 100% of the time in other places when an angel appears spontaneously to a fellow human being, that human being becomes deathly afraid. Their knees knock, their teeth chatter. Sometimes they turn white and fall over. So I don't know what Philip's reaction was here, but out of the blue, an angel of the Lord spoke to him, boom, saying, get up, Philip, and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he's up in Samaria, north of Jerusalem, and he says, you know what, Philip? Let the apostles go back to Jerusalem. I want you to keep going all the way down south, going towards Egypt, going towards Africa, going towards the coast over by where Gaza is on the east coast. And there's a road there that people would take from Jerusalem to Gaza to the east coast to Egypt. And that's the road that actually goes down to Ethiopia. That's why I put a map on there for you because that's the topic of the day is Ethiopia. This is a divine appointment. Go to this road. Descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a desert road. Verse 27. So he got up and went. Just immediate obedience. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch. This is the main character. A court official of Candace. Queen of the Ethiopians. Just so you know, Candace was the queen. Actually, Candace was not a personal name. It was a title. It's like Caesar. Some would say it was the queen herself of Ethiopia or queen mother, the mother of the king of Ethiopia. But it definitely was a title. Candace was like emperor, Caesar, pharaoh, not a personal name. So he was a court official in that kingdom who was queen of the Ethiopians. At that time, from history, they say that Ethiopia was a pagan nation, the king saw himself as deity. The king didn't associate with normal people because 
He didn't commiserate with normal people because he believed he was birthed directly from the sun. He was to be revered, venerated, even worshipped. And the job of the eunuch in the court was to do the bidding and the good and the deeds of the king and the queen in service to the people. It was a privileged position that this Ethiopian eunuch had in this pagan court. So he was a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Uh, He was also in charge of all of her treasure. That is an amazing statement. He helped out with some of the treasury. No, he was in charge of the treasure. He was in charge of some of the treasure. No, he was in charge of all the treasury. No doubt the king of Ethiopia, the queen of Ethiopia were wealthy and rich. In other words, they had a lot of money. You don't just entrust anybody to all of your finances. Huge responsibility, and it speaks a lot about his character from their point of view. Was he a pagan? No. End of verse 27. What was this Ethiopian eunuch doing? 1,000 miles plus away from home. Well, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Wow. So he had affiliated with the Jewish religion. Verse 28. And he was returning and sitting. So he came to Jerusalem, came to do worship. He was done, and now he's going back. He was returning. We don't know who's with him, if he's with an entourage, if he's with by himself. It doesn't say. Just says, there he is in his chariot. We don't know if uh, so he's got a driver of the chariot and if he's got people around him helping him. But all it's, it just focuses in on him and him alone in this chariot. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So he probably had a driver, because you probably shouldn't drive and read the Bible at the same time. That would be my hunch. So he's driving home. He has over 1,000 miles to travel. And he's reading this scroll, probably made out of papyrus. He was from near Egypt, where they were experts at writing on papyrus. And somehow he's got a scroll of truth that had been revealed 700 years before he was born. Absolutely amazing. Not only does he have a portion of this, he probably didn't have the entire scroll of Isaiah because the thing was huge. 66 chapters in our English Bible. So he may have just had a portion of it. And how providential that he would have the most explicit portion of Isaiah that speaks of the coming Messiah who would die for sinners. That's the grace of God. So he's having a Bible study. He's a Jew. Verse 29. Then the spirit, there's that, uh, now it used to be the angel, but now all of a sudden 29 it says the spirit said, the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit speaking through an angel. Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. And so Philip, whatever he's doing, running on a donkey, his horse, camel, catches up in obedience to God. Verse 30, Philip ran. He ran up and he heard him reading the prophet. So he comes along this chariot. He's alongside. Uh, if that was me, I'd be a little startled. You got some guy chasing you on foot as you're riding in your chariot. Who is this guy? Don't know him. Never met him before. He's a stranger. Does he want to wash my windshield for money? I don't know who this guy is. Go away. Leave me alone. That's the natural reaction. What are you doing? You're driving too close to my chariot. But that is not the response of this Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Philip runs up and is close enough to where he can actually hear the Ethiopian reading scripture. So he's he's reading, so he's engaged. 
He's focused. He's distracted. Maybe he doesn't even notice Philip running up because he's so enthralled by what he's reading. And he's reading out loud. He's not reading to himself. He's reading out loud because that's what the text says. Because it says Philip heard him reading. Not only did Philip hear him reading, Philip identified and knew where he was reading. Wow, he's reading Old Testament Scripture. Or he's reading Scripture from God. Not only that, he's reading from Isaiah. Not only that, he's from reading from Isaiah 53, even though they didn't have chapter divisions at that time. But Philip knew uh, this passage. He had come to realize the true interpretation of what Isaiah 53 was about. So, by the way, I read those passages from Daniel and Isaiah where the Jews, all the way up until the day of Jesus himself, even the apostles, before they were taught by Jesus, did not know. There is no reason. We don't have a stitch of evidence throughout Jewish history where anybody ever put the two together, that the Son of Man, the Messiah, was also the suffering servant. The Jews didn't know that. Jesus was the first one who made it clear. Mark chapter 9, verse 12. He told his apostles, Why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer? Jesus knew that was a profound question that would just stump them. They would have no idea because their response would have been, well, the Son of Man doesn't suffer. Jesus, what are you talking about? Why must the Son of Man suffer? So Jesus was the first one to fuse the suffering servant prophecies with the Messiah coming in glory prophecies that is the one and the same person. And the mystery was that those dual roles would be fulfilled by a huge gap of time at a minimum 2,000 years apart. There wasn't just one coming of the Messiah. There had to be at least two. The Old Testament Jews didn't know that. The apostles didn't know that. Jesus was the first to reveal that. And then the apostle Paul came along and revealed all these other mysteries about that very thing, giving even more detail. So Philip runs up. He hears the Ethiopian. He's reading out loud. By the way, from history, it is said, this idea where today... We read silently to ourselves. Apparently, they didn't do that in history. That's kind of a modern phenomenon for a lot of reasons. Because of the high rate of literacy, but also the way we print things. Things are easier to read. you got a scroll written on a papyrus, and even the way they wrote, you had to read very slowly, carefully, articulating every syllable, letter, and word. Plus, you're on this chariot, on this bumpy road. And he is reading out loud, slowly, word by... As a matter of fact, people who are just learning to read, sometimes uneducated people, uh, sometimes people reading a foreign language, they read out loud for practice. That's what they. That's how they read. That's very common. When you start teaching children how to read, they're reading out loud by themselves. You don't even have to tell them. You don't tell Here, read that out loud. They do it on their own. That just comes naturally. So this discipline of reading silently in our head, that was probably foreign to the masses at this time. So he is reading out loud, which is natural. He's reading Isaiah 53. He reads verse 7 and 8. By the way, he is reading from, he's reading in the Greek. He knows Greek. He speaks Greek. He understands Greek. We know it's Greek because the quote that he is given by Luke in 32 and 33 is from the Greek Septuagint and not the Hebrew Bible. And that makes sense because Greek was the language of the day thanks to Alexander the Great. And that entire, all over the world, And so here he is reading Isaiah's prophecy about the coming Messiah who would suffer for the sins of the people in Greek. 
And Philip, verse 30, runs up, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he said, do you understand what you were reading? Do you understand what you were reading? There's a play on words in the Greek here. Do you know what the word for read in Greek is to know above, to have eyes above, eyes to know, to know with your eyes. That's reading, to know with your eyes. Do you know what you're knowing with your eyes? It's literally what he said. Do you know what you're knowing with your eyes? Which comes across, do you, do you understand what you're reading? And then the Ethiopian unit says, well, how could I? Unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Here, a total stranger. Stop the chariot. I want to talk to this guy. Come on up. Implication. Whatever your name is, teach me what this means. Apparently, you know. You're asking me about it. So point number one, God, in the calling here, it is clear that God is preparing the heart of the sinner, this Ethiopian. God had been preparing the heart of this sinner probably for quite some time. He exposed him to the Jewish religion somehow. He exposed him to to scriptures somehow. He softened his heart. He wanted to learn. He wanted to know what Scripture said. So just a few things about this Ethiopian, the main character that I, that I want to highlight here and take just a moment to talk about this man from the implications of the passage. First of all, he is called an Ethiopian. That means he is African. That's why I put the map there. Look where on your map. For the most part, modern-day Ethiopia is close to historical Ethiopia. It's right there just below Egypt and then Sudan. And then, actually, Sudan is considered the second most dangerous country in the world today. And then there's Ethiopia. And somewhere in that region, this man was from there. It's 1,000 miles away from Jerusalem. It's 9,000 miles away from California. Can you imagine traveling 9,000 miles one way to go to Ethiopia as a California-American? And then coming back another 9,000 miles? Well, we have people in our church that do that. It's amazing. So... Our mindset as Americans, boy, we need to get the gospel to uh, Africa. What about all those people in Africa that never heard? Well, guess what, American? The gospel was in Africa 1,800 years before you ever came along, starting right here. Because Philip gave him the gospel. He believed he became a Christian. He went back home. We never heard of him again. He probably stayed there. Maybe he planted a church for all we know. This is cool. Africa, that's where he's from. We have people in our church from Africa. We have people from... Zimbabwe, which is way down south. We have people from Nigeria, which is kind of in the middle right there. Uh, we we have uh, missionary Tim, Tim McManus, who has been to Ghana, and Pastor Samuel, who preached here from Ghana. We have a, a brother who visited our church. He's from Malawi, and we're trying to get him to go to the Shepherds Conference. Malawi is way down south and to the uh, east coast there in Africa. I met, get this, I met a visiting pastor today at GBF, was here for the first time and i said where are you from and he basically told me ethiopia not it's a true story or just north of, i said are you kidding no wait seriously yeah well first he told me where he's from and then i said uh and he's trying to explain it because just above ethiopia and so then i showed him the bulletin Look, there's a map of africa like wow this is cool i'm going to this church uh, you have a map of africa on your bulletin every week uh just so you know we don't have a map of africa on our bulletin every week just so you know so that was that was providential. Uh, Ethiopian Moses, the Jew, married an Ethiopian woman. Simon of Cyrene, the the man that helped Jesus carry his cross, he was from Africa, North Africa, just to the the west of Egypt. Africans, descendants of Ham. Noah had three sons: Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
The Jews were the Shemites. Africans were the Hamites. And then going north and to the east where Paul's mission was focused, that's the Jephthites. So God was accounting for all of the human race at the Gospels. It went out in every direction. So a couple more things about this eunuch. He's African, which means he had dark skin. He was a black man. Uh, He was a foreigner, at least to those who lived in Jerusalem. He was a foreigner to Philip, which for some would be a, a source of derision and prejudice. He was a eunuch, meaning either by birth or he was castrated, remasculated physically. As a result, according to Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, he would, couldn't be allowed to be a part of temple worship. Nevertheless, he's still traveling a thousand miles to go worship. Maybe he knew the prophecy of Isaiah 56 that someday God would allow the eunuchs to come and be fully included in the people of God. Which is actually what happened with the coming of Christ. He did speak Greek, we know that. He was a court official, so he had great uh, access and privilege and rank, which is another reason Philip could have despised him or been prejudicial. Well, he's self-sufficient. He has everything. He doesn't need anything from me. Scripture says he was also in charge of all the treasure, so he was a trusted man. He had a reputation that was good. He had authority as well. It says he came to to worship in Jerusalem. So he was a Jew. He was probably a God-fearer, but not a fully identified Jew. He came to worship a thousand miles. You know, a thousand miles, five months each way. Five months, that means he would have to be. He is in a privileged, authoritative position over an entire kingdom and its treasury. And at some point, he has to ask the king, the queen, the queen mother, whoever, and appeal to them and ask, "Can can I leave for 10 months? Can I leave for a year? Huge implications. And he did. So he was a man. He was committed to his faith. He was committed to his religion. He was committed to being a Jew of his day. He was courageous. This is a dangerous trip. He put his life on the line. He was devout. He was literate. He was educated. He was honest. Do you understand what you're reading? No, actually, I don't. You know, a lot of people would be arrogant, proud, defensive. Well, of course I do, because we're know-it-alls, right? So he was honest. No, I, I don't know. He was hospitable and friendly. He tells Philip, come on up. Stranger, don't even know who you are. Hospitality means stranger love. So he was hospitable and friendly. He was humble. He subjected himself to be a student. He had all this privilege, rank, prestige, money. And yet he subjects himself to a stranger to be taught. That's humility. He's teachable. He wasn't a know-it-all. Some people are know-it-alls. This guy was not a know-it-all. God blessed him for it, too. Here's what Calvin said 500 years ago about the teachable, humble spirit of this Ethiopian eunuch. Calvin, 500 years ago. Um, Calvin contrasts the Ethiopian's modesty in that he acknowledges his ignorance freely and frankly with a person who is, in Calvin's day, swollen-headed with confidence in their own abilities. Calvin goes on. That is also why the reading of Scripture bears fruit with such a few people today because scarcely one in a hundred is to be found who gladly submits themselves to teaching. So said Calvin 500 years ago. That still pretty much rings true today. 
to submit yourself to teaching. You don't need to submit your, a lot of people, you don't need to submit yourself to teaching. You just go to the internet, right? Google everything. You find out everything. You don't need a teacher. The truth is on the internet. Not so with this humble man. So that's awesome. Then a couple of things about Philip uh, that we're going to conclude with. But let's go on to point number two, and that's uh, 32 and following. Justification. God saves the one who believes the gospel. That's it. Not apologetical, philosophical arguments. It is just simple gospel from the scriptures. So he invites Philip. Philip gets up there. The chariot starts, and they're riding along. We know that the chariot's riding along because it stops a little later in the story. Uh, so point number two is verse 32. So now the passage of Scripture which he was reading, Isaiah for us, Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, in the Greek Septuagint, says he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shear is silent. So he does not open his mouth. and humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? So it's all these personal pronouns. He, his, he, his. Uh, he's like a sheep. So he's weak, he is needy, he needs a shepherd to slaughter, that is death, that is murder. He doesn't speak up. He is humiliated. His life is removed from the... Who, verse 34, the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this is? Which is exactly what Isaiah was probably asking. Who is this talking about? Philip, who's the he? Who is this? Do we know who this is? Is he talking about himself? Was Isaiah talking about himself, Philip, or or someone else? Natural question. And then verse 35, Philip opened his mouth. Philip knew the answer. It had been revealed to Philip through the gospel. Philip was a completed Jew. He knew the whole truth now. He knew the truth about the suffering servant and the glorious son of man and how they are fused together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth. If you want to be a good evangelist, you have to do that. Open his mouth. And beginning from this scripture. See, he met him where he was. That's also a good evangelist and a good witness. Well, you know what? You're interested in this, but I want to talk about this. Let's go there. No. Beginning from this scripture. So, I mean, there's no better scripture in the Bible where you could start preaching the gospel. Isaiah 53. So beginning from this scripture, beginning from the scripture, implying that he went through other scriptures or other truths. And he did. He preached the whole gospel. That's what Philip does. Philip was an evangelist. He brought the whole fullness of the gospel. He told him about Jesus. He told him about sin. You need to believe in the gospel. You need to repent from your sin. He told him who Jesus was. He told him how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. Uh, He told him all these truths. We know that was Philip's record. He did it earlier in Samaria at the revival. He also told him you need to repent. You need to confess your sin to God. Then you will be saved. You don't get saved by works. You get saved by grace through faith. And when you do and you believe in Jesus, who he is, his perfect life, that he died as a substitute for your sin, as Isaiah 53 says here, you will be forgiven. You'll be born again. You'll be adopted into the family of God. You'll be changed and made anew right on the spot by grace through faith. And when you do that, you need to be identified into the new community of God's people. It isn't just Israelites and Jews in Jerusalem at the temple. It's the worldwide church of God, family of God, that you get to be a part of now. And you are totally included, even though you're a eunuch. Deuteronomy 23 no longer is true of you. You're fully welcomed into the church of God as you are. By faith in the gospel. 
And if you believe that, and the eunuch does say, I do, then you need to be baptized as Jesus commanded out of obedience to him, submitting to him. That will be your first act of submitting to him as Lord. Mr. Eunuch, you know what it is to bow the knee to a king. Jesus requires the same thing. You now belong to him. You are his slave. He is your master. You must bow the knee. And the first act of obedience on becoming a Christian is getting baptized. That had to be some of the things that Philip was sharing with this man. Because, by the way, in verse 35 in our English Bible, it says in my NASB, it says, he preached Jesus to him. That's from the word euangelizo. Uh, Good news. The gospel. The gospel is the Greek word, which means good news. And then they turn it into a verb form to good news someone. How do you, what do you do when you evangelize? You good news them. You're giving them good news. You're giving them hope. You're giving them a solution. It's not all bad news. You're going to hell. You are evil. God hates you. Turn or burn. That's not good newsing. Do they need to hear about sin? Absolutely. You are a sinner. You're separated from God. There's only one way to heaven. There's only one way of forgiveness. You were born into this life separated from God because of your sin. You're an enemy of God. God's an enemy of you. You can't save yourself. No one else can save you. Save Jesus Christ by virtue of his death and resurrection. And he, is gonna, he can rescue you if you repent, if you bow the knee to him as the Savior, as the God-man who died for sinners as a substitute that they might be forgiven in this life and forevermore. And it's not by your works. There's nothing in you that makes you worthy before God is solely by who Jesus is and what he did on your behalf. God so loved the world that he gave his only son for sinners. So you can be rescued starting in this life just by believing in the truth of that God. That is good news. And that's what it says. Philip good newsed him. And he kept good newsing him. Here's bad news, but here's the solution. Here's the cancer, but here's the cure. Here's the consequences, but here's the hope. He good newsed him. And between verse 35 and 36, in the white spaces, he got saved. That's the clear implication. So let's look at point number three. So there was the calling. God was working on his heart and preparing his heart for this very moment. Philip gives him the gospel, good newsed him. And as a result, he believes and gets saved. We know that because of what verse 36 and 40 gives so your his calling his justification and now his sanctification he has been saved the spirit of god immediately came to live in him every christian has the spirit of god living in them the spirit of god comes to live in you as a christian the moment you believe in the gospel the moment you get saved and the holy spirit is the spirit of god and he works in you as a christian and in me and on our conscience our mind our convictions he enlivens us he enables us to love truth love the word of god and to desire obedience to god he's the one that does that he is the author of sanctification in our life sanctification means many things one of them it means to be set apart but also there's a practical sanctification of this new desire we have from within that god put there at salvation because of the presence of the spirit of god living in you and that's what this eunuch now has He has the Spirit of God living in him immediately. He is transformed. He is new. He sees with new eyes. He has new desires. And one of his implicit desires is to obey. That should be second nature to a true Christian. Ephesians 2.10. 
God created us before the, and saved us so that we might walk in obedience, producing good works. It comes from within. And immediately he is just thinking obedient. Well, really, Jesus said to get baptized. Woo, stop the chariots. Sanctification. God empowers saints to obey. Christian can't really say, I can't. I can't do that. I can't overcome that habit. I can't overcome that. Yeah, you can. Are you Christian? God has given you the Holy Spirit to live in you, which is supernatural power. The same Holy Spirit that created the world out of nothing. The same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. You can't say I can't. Do you need help? Yeah. Is it hard? Yes. Is the spirit willing and the flesh is weak? Yes. But God is faithful. God is faithful. So he empowers this eunuch in a new way. He's a Christian. Verse 36. So as they went along the road, and so he's been saved. Shortly thereafter, as they went along, riding along in the chariot, celebrating, loving Jesus, having a revival. Don's on the Ethiopian eunuch. Wow, Philip said I need to get saved or baptized now that I'm a Christian. And they're riding along the road. They came to some water in the desert, providentially. It was a desert road. And the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? I mean, I don't have to go to a six-week, two-hour-long session baptism class. I mean, I don't have to stop smoking cigarettes of this habit I've had for 40 years. And prove it to the elders for six months before I can get baptized? Apparently not. I'm saved. I believe the gospel. That's the only prerequisite for baptism. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 38. So Philip orders the chariot to stop. I'm sorry. The the eunuch orders the chariot to stop. And they both went down. So they get out of the chariot, found water, and they went down the water. So it was a good chunk of water. They were able to get down into it, maybe waist high for all we know. It's a lot of water. Both went down in the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and Philip baptized him. This is interesting. You mean you can get baptized outside of the church building? Apparently so. You mean you don't have to be baptized by a pastor? Apparently so. You mean you can be baptized without a huge crowd of people watching you? Apparently so. You mean you don't have to write out your testimony and say it in front of 500 people to get baptized? Apparently so. There could have been people there. I mean, he could have had an entourage. So it would have been a witness to all of his servants. No doubt he probably had. That was common. doesn't say that, but very possible. So it was a testimony. And no doubt he talked about it when he got home. I got baptized and preached the gospel. He was a new man. He is obedient. I want to do what Jesus says to do. Christian, if you're a Christian here today and you haven't been baptized, you need to get baptized. What prevents you from being baptized? And then come and see me. Come tell me. I want to get baptized. And then you know, if they say, well, you got to go to baptism class and we'll plan it in the next three months and then we'll try to get the tank reserved. And then if I tell you that, and I probably will, and then if you say, well, pastor, you just preached it, I can get baptized right now if I find water. And then I'll say, okay, I'll concede. Let's go do it in the neighbor's pool. Let's go fill up the bathtub. Come to my, I got a pool at my house. No heat. I will honor that. Verse 39. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Literally, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of God raptured Philip away. Harpazo. Same word in 1 Thessalonians 4, where God snatches the church up into the sky instantaneously. 
in a blink, in the in the moment, uh, in the moment, in the blink of an eye. And that's what happened. This is a mir- this is amazing. They're standing there, and all of a sudden, boom! Philip is gone, and the the uh, eunuch he could have panicked. He could have who knows what his emotional reaction could have been, but that wasn't what it was. He knew this was of God. He knew that Philip was a godsend. And it says the the eunuch no longer saw Philip because he was snatched away, raptured away. And instead of panicking and being fearful, it says that the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. He just kept rejoicing and rejoicing. Joy, salvation in the Lord. So joy is one of the first fruits that a true born-again Christian experiences in their life. It is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Joy, joy, joy. That's the common testimony of people who get newly saved. All I can tell you, I don't, I don't know a whole lot. Don't know the Old Testament, but I got joy. I got joy in Jesus, forgiveness of sin. He set me free. He's made me a new creature. He's opened my eyes. He's opened my ears. I love him. I'm secure in him. I've got joy, joy, joy. And that's what this Ethiopian eunuch has. Joy, joy, joy. Boy, if you're a Christian and you don't have joy, 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 there is something wrong with you. Really. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. But if you are a Christian and you don't experience regularly deep-seated joy in your heart, there is something wrong with you. And you know, the good news is the Bible has the answer. The first thing that's wrong with you is you're not filled with the Spirit. Because that's what Galatians 5 says. If you are walking with the Spirit, then you will have deep-seated joy. I'm not talking about a fake happy smile. I'm talking about a deep-seated joy that only comes from God. Through the Holy Spirit as He's working in your heart, your mind, and your life. Between you and Him. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances are around you. It doesn't matter. It's between you and God, you and Jesus. You are one in Christ. Your salvation is secure. Your sins are forgiven. You're going to heaven. He loves you. The Spirit of God lives in you. He's your advocate. He's your helper. You've got your nose in the Word. You're taking in the Scripture. It's feeding your soul. And you have joy. That that should be the mark of a Christian. And we all have seasons like this in life, right? Because we're all emotional beings. And we have times of trial and depression and sadness, dryness that's common for everybody. But God's word is clear. If you, if you find yourself in a valley, you've got to get help from other believers. You've got to get help. You've got to cry out to God. God, get me out of this parched desert I'm in. David had those seasons of life. So it is possible. No matter what's going, no matter the trials in your life, you can have that supernatural, unspeakable, inexplicable joy from God deep in your soul that comes only from knowing Jesus and provided by the indwelling Spirit in your heart. And if you pray, God, give me that joy, give me that joy, renew, renew the joy that I once had, He will. He'll answer that prayer. So He is rejoicing. Verse forty, uh, Philip found himself at. Azotos, that's on the the uh, west coast, sorry, yeah, west coast of Israel. Uh, kind of even with Jerusalem, but all the way over the coast by the Mediterranean Sea, the modern-day Ashdod. And he was taken over there for another mission. And then we don't see Philip for quite some time, and then he, he's going to go up north, up the coast. We end up seeing him in Acts 21 in Caesarea. By that time, he had become a family man, got married, had at least four daughters, raised them well in the faith. They became prophetesses. Kind of exciting. So we're going to see Philip again. Found himself over there, just obedient wherever God wanted to go, passed through, kept, he kept preaching the gospel. He's just laser focused. That's why I'm here. God, God has put me here to share the gospel, to good news people. 
to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So with that, let me just close just a couple things about Philip the Evangelist to challenge us as believers and what makes a good evangelist to good news people. We, a good evangelist is submissive to God. A good evangelist loves people. That's huge. doesn't matter the color of their skin. They're black, they're white, they're it doesn't matter. They are human beings made in the image of God. A good evangelist loves people. A good evangelist is willing to go one-on-one with people. Get down in the trenches with them. A good evangelist uses the Bible primarily. A good evangelist stays focused on the gospel and good news is them. A good evangelist, get this, doesn't ask for money. I didn't see Philip asking for money. Here, just... Just mail it in. Call into this phone number with your credit card. He didn't say that. He didn't have a telephone. But anyway. And he stayed. A good evangelist stays on message. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And that was sufficient, by the way. The scriptures and the gospel and the message about Jesus was sufficient for this African man who was different than the Samaritans who had a different religious background from a different part of the earth. But Philip preached the same gospel to the religious Jews in Jerusalem. He preached the same gospel to the cultic Samaritans. And he preached that same gospel to this God-fearing Ethiopian African man. Same gospel. The blessed, simple gospel. You know what? It is sufficient for every demographic of people. Praise God for that. With that, we have the privilege now to go to... Uh, communion together. And if, if you're a Christian, you are welcome to participate in communion based on the words and the blessing of the Lord Jesus. So I want to read from 1 Corinthians 11, being reminded of the words of Jesus, of the meaning of communion and how we are to practice it. Also, if you're a Christian, I would encourage you to get baptized in light of today's message. And like I said, if you haven't been baptized... Uh, and God's convicted you. But well, actually, we got uh, a couple of baptisms already set, lined up for the next time we do it at church. So just so you know, uh, we are already have baptisms planned. So if you want to be part of that, come to it real simple. If, you, if you're afraid, if you're embarrassed or whatever, pray to God and allow him to uh, help you overcome that with the courage to be obedient to Jesus and get baptized. And now those of us who know Jesus can go to have communion together, the cup and the bread that Jesus gave. And Paul said, For I received from the Lord Jesus that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, just before his death, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24, he took bread as a symbol, and when he had given thanks to the Father, he broke the bread and he said, This is my body which is for you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die for you. And So when you partake of communion and break the bread, Remember me. And so right now we're, we're having these little cups passed around. If you just want to grab one of those cups, it's got bread inside of it, but also uh, the drink inside the same cup. Hold on to that and we'll partake together as soon as everybody uh, has it. And then uh, Paul goes on in verse 25. In the same way, Jesus took the cup, which was a part of the dinner, after supper, saying this cup which was a symbol, is the new covenant in my blood. Speaking of his death, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it and remember it's me. So two times he said, remember me. So the main thing we need to do at communion if you're a Christian is remember Jesus. Remember who he is 
and how he died as a substitute for you personally as a sinner that you might be forgiven and for me. And it's the time to thank him. It's time to be reminded of the sins that he forgave us of. Time to do reflection and, Lord, forgive me for all of my sin. Forgive me for being an ongoing, continual sinner. Forgive me for the sin that actually lives and resides in me. It keeps cropping up. Lord Jesus, I need your continual forgiveness. Thank you for providing it through your death and resurrection. It's a time of worship. It's a time of thanksgiving. It's a time to be cleansed. It's a time to examine our hearts. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're making a proclamation today of the, the greatness of our Lord Jesus, that blessed Savior, to be our shepherd, to be our pastor, to be our senior pastor. For his goodness and grace and love towards us. That's what we're proclaiming, his goodness. And also we're proclaiming that he's coming again. He's coming again. Despite the elections on November 8th, Jesus is coming again. Isn't that cause for celebration for the Christian? History is going exactly where he wants it. He is sovereign. He's on the throne. He rules. He reigns supreme. As Christians, we declare this. As the church, we declare this. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and takes communion in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So it is a sacred thing. Only believers should do this. Uh, any known sin should be confessed to the Father and to Jesus. Every Christian should examine themselves and in so doing, eat uh, the bread and drink the cup. And we are actually bringing judgment upon ourselves before God as we take communion. Because God searches all hearts. He knows everything in our life, everything in our closet, everything in our mind and our thoughts, all of our words. We can't hide from him. And the great promise of 1 John chapter 1 is if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. It's awesome. And also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which has to, not only does God wipe away the sin, he also can wipe away the guilt. The psychological pressing hangover from sin and shame. That is awesome. That's what that verse means. That is the blessed gift of salvation and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that night, he told his believers to do this in his memory. And so let's eat and drink together. And while we're sitting and partaking, if you could just close your eyes and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us. You can pray along with me. You can pray in your own heart. Thanking the Lord Jesus for salvation. Father, we thank you for this day. Every Lord's Day is a, just a blessing. It's a gift from you. You intended that way for your people, for the church. I thank you for allowing GBF to get together with the saints locally and to, to worship, to have fellowship. Thank you for churches across California, churches around the world, your universal church, the body of Christ, fellow brothers and sisters everywhere. You are the Lord of the earth. It's a privilege to be a part of your family and God, we thank you also for your word, the Bible. We thank you for the story you've preserved for us uh, of this man 
that you just chose kind of out of the blue from our perspective to rain down upon rain down upon him goodness grace mercy love with the fullness of the gospel and you, and you put a christian uh, who was willing and obedient in his place in his path as christians and as your children we do thank you for caring for us in the same way the way as we look back on our salvation story of how you purposely brought someone across our path who loved us shared the gospel with us prayed for us was a witness to us and you brought it to culmination through salvation we thank you for complete forgiveness of sin for our, our blessed lord and savior god help us to live a life that reflects that to glorify you in our personal life our family life our work life uh, our life as citizens we pray you go before us this day and also the rest of this week we love you and we pray it all in christ's name amen thank you for listening Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.